Hello and welcome back to Undisciplined. It's your host Nico Beitendach. In today's episode, we're speaking to Neil Kutzer, an attorney at Cohen Harper Marikizela Attorneys. Him and I will be talking about strike violence in South Africa and the history of labor relations. It's a very interesting topic, a very complex topic, but Neil is a great guest and very few people know more about this than he does. The music that we're playing in and out with is by the South African punk band National Wake. I thought it was fitting for today. Let me not waste any more time. Next up, Neil Kutzer. to the Undisciplined Podcast. Hi, Niku. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure. Before we really start, can you uh, give a bit of a background on your work and your affiliations? Sure. Um, I'm a, a partner at Count Harper Madikizela uh, in the Employment Law Department. My work focuses predominantly on employment law. Uh, my special uh, interests involve uh, collective bargaining, issues related to relationship building with trade unions, uh, dispute resolution, as well as dealing with and preparing for violent strikes, which in South Africa is quite a big thing. Um, I've also written uh, extensively on the right to strike in South Africa, as well as violence which occurs in or during strikes and, and how to deal with those problems. Okay, cool. Thanks. So you recently published an article talking about strike violence in South Africa, and that in your article you call it a pandemic, pandemic to strikes in South Africa. Can you give me a bit of background on generally on strike violence in South Africa, the scale of it, how often it occurs for it to qualify as pandemic, and also what is the scale of the violence that we're talking about? Sure. So in South Africa, during 1994, um, when South Africa became a, a constitutional democracy, the right to strike was incorporated in the constitution. What that meant was that it became a fundamental right. Uh, becoming a fundamental right meant that it would be included in the Labor Relations Act of 1995. The implication of that was to make the right to strike much easier. Uh, which before 1995 was not really permitted. In fact, in South Africa, the right to strike was illegal for many, many years. And then it was slowly relaxed to allow the right to strike for certain persons. And then uh, eventually in 1995, the right to strike, as I've said, became a fundamental right. The fundamental underpinnings of the decision to do that was that it would remove the violent nature of strikes, at least one of the reasons for doing so, because strikes had always been violent in the past, and South Africa had had a very violent history, particularly in relation to strikes. Uh, it became very easy to refer disputes in order to pursue a strike, but unfortunately the uh, common knowledge of the day or the collective wisdom at the time uh, has not proven to, to be true. The number of strikes ha has been significant, 
and it's become clear over the years that strikes have become part and parcel or very closely associated with violence. And the reason for that is probably the entrenched positions that are commonly held during strikes, where employers sometimes are perceived to be unwilling to negotiate, um, and trade unions perhaps and their members feel disenfranchised and not listened to, and perhaps the only way to get the attention of the employer is to engage in violence. And the economic rationale is simple. It's to place economic duress, essentially, on the employer to concede to the, the demands of the strikers. So what you have is a situation where a strike is called and normally begins with, with a big flurry, often peaceful demonstrations initially, and once um, it becomes clear that the employers are not really responding, the strike often descends into violence. In relation to the scale of the violence, uh, you see a lot of uh, blockading of roads, burning of tires, destruction of property, including uh, cars. We, we've had petrol bombings of buildings, arson, uh, assaults on managers, uh, murders and intimidation uh, of people who are not actually participating in the strike. So you also have a lot of inter-union violence. And what we found is um, a lot of the strikes are often led by a small group of militant persons, sometimes with political agendas who seek to advance their own position rather than the position of their members. But the scale of the violence is, is sometimes quite horrific. Um, and will often make you catch your breath. Uh, the police have done very little to intervene in these circumstances, and and that is to be regretted as well. Is there a particular reason that you think the police have not been intervening? Is it that the police has overworked, or that it's not a priority for them, or is there perhaps kind of political or ideological justification for that? Well, I think it's a complex problem that, that isn't necessarily easily explained, but I think there are a number of things that, that stick out immediately. And I think the first issue is perhaps that the police are not properly trained. I think that South Africa's police force, uh, despite having um, a specific uh, unit dealing with strike violence and riots and, and things like that, the, the public order policing unit, many other branches of police are not equipped to deal with riots and strikes, and the public order policing unit uh, simply is thinly stretched to deal with things like this. The other issue, of course, and this is something that happened recently in the week, is that the police, much like many other employees, are, are members of unions which belong to the same trade union affiliation. Um, in this country, that is COSATU, which is the major trade union federation. So, for instance, the there was a strike this week, in fact, involving the South African Municipal Workers Union, and that strike affected the uh, municipal workers, obviously, which included the bus drivers, who took the keys to the buses and blocked the roads um, in the central business district of, of Pretoria, which obviously caused absolute chaos. Um, the police who were supposed to intervene during that strike were members of Pop Crew, which is another Kasatu affiliated union. Some were also Kasatu affiliated. So there's a hesitancy on the part of the police to intervene. And then added to that is the fact that the Twani Metro Police, who in this instance would have been regulating the traffic situation and dealing with the bus blockades, many of their members are also uh, members of the South African Municipal Workers Union. So there's a clear conflict 
in relation to dealing with those issues. And very often the, the violence and uh, intimidation is, is dealt with not in the criminal context as it should be dealt with by law enforcement agencies, but the attitude that's adopted is to say that this is actually a civil matter and the police don't actually want to get involved in this. And possibly the reason for saying so is because employers often obtain interdicts at the Labour Court. And the Labour Court, being a civil court, possibly lends credence to that position. That position, of course, is completely fallacious. Where there is violence, the police must intervene. And they just simply haven't done that. Um, it may be also, and there's a third reason, uh, possibly because the police and the uh, metro police often live in the same communities that the members of those institutions live in the same communities as the uh, strikers. And what we've often seen is uh, tremendous amounts of violence, including murder and intimidation, as well as petrol bombing of houses, kidnapping of persons, when those persons live in the same communities as the strikers. So there's, there's a genuine fear for people's safety, and on that basis, uh, often the police fail to intervene. This happens more frequently in, in more rural areas rather than in the, the more metropolitan areas. It sounds to me like this is quite complicated, and I feel like there are several distinctions that we need to make. I think the problem is not striking itself. It's a constitutional right to strike, and I think anyone who is on the side of labor or I would say even common sense would say that, of course, a laborer should have the right to withhold his labor. That's his only bargaining chip, and no one wants to go to the situation previously in South Africa where it was not a, it was completely illegal to strike before. Yes, it was, uh, up, up to a point. But it was initially legal, and then it became legal for, for white workers. And then after that, it became legal for black trade unions to be formed. That was obviously after the Vian Commission in the 70s. And then um, after that, people were allowed to strike, regardless of, of your race. But if you go back to the early 1910s, then it was really back to the, the Master and Servants Act, which I really think says everything you need to know about that relationship. So um, strike, striking was illegal back then, yes. Yeah, so most people would agree that we've definitely come a long way in South Africa. But then, of course, like where we need to make distinctions is that we cannot, as with any right, it's never absolute. And when we have people murdering in order to have strikes, that is clearly unacceptable. That goes beyond labor dispute and enters... As you've rightly said, that enters a crim that's a criminal matter. Clearly, you're moving from labor law to criminal law in that sense. Yeah. That's the one distinction we need to make. But the, what might be difficult is where, where does this line in the sand run? Because the courts are kind of hesitant to do this. And the South African courts only say that they can act in the case of egregious violence. Now, both of us are lawyers and we both know that that's purposely left open to interpretation. It doesn't tie anyone down. Also, I mean, as a practical matter, where would you, do you put on a, a financial number or a body count for violence? That would be silly. Mm. So where is this line? Where does a, a lawful strike switch over into a criminal matter? Yeah. So for me, the issue is relatively simple. And just to go back to your original point about the right to, to strike, I don't think 
anyone could have any quibbles about the importance of the right to strike. I think we we need to have the right to strike in our society. It's why it's a constitutionally entrenched right. Um, workers have very few remedies at their disposal. There is an unequal bargaining position. This thing goes back centuries. And I think we all accept that. Trade unions have their role to play in society. It's an important role that needs to be played. But it must be played within the parameters of the, the rules that are set out um, in our legislation. Um, so I think in relation to the violence that occurs, you have a trade union that and their members that wish to go on strike. It's extremely easy to go on strike in South Africa. There's really just the, the filling in of a form once there is a disagreement on a matter of mutual interest, which, which is a deliberately vague term, a matter of mutual interest between an employer and a and its employees could conceivably be anything. It's incredibly broad and it entitles the employees to go on strike in order to advance their interests, provided those interests are not already regulated in some form of contract, a collective agreement, or in the legislation. So, so the right to strike is very broad and it's limited only in specific circumstances. And our courts have already said that the right to strike should not unnecessarily be limited. The, the legislation in South Africa also does not even distinguish between a strike which is violent and a strike which is not, and the consequences of that. What it does do is define a strike as a peaceful withdrawal of labor. Um, and that's the idea behind the whole thing, and it hasn't turned out that way. So the stri- so the courts have been left with um, a little bit of a difficult uh, role to play because what you have is a, is a routine resort to violence by strikers and trade unions and a failure of accountability on the part of unions to accept the responsibility for those strikes and particularly the violence. So the courts have had to try and fashion, um, shall we call it novel, remedies in circumstances where the strikes become violent. And even though the law technically on paper does not permit a court to declare a a protected strike, which is basically a lawful strike, uh, to be unprotected, there is a school of thought that is gaining traction, and it has been for some time, that where a strike has become incredibly violent to the point where it's actually become dysfunctional to collective bargaining, and it really has just descended into chaos, then that strike should no longer be deserving of any protection, either in terms of the legislation or in terms of the constitution, because it it essentially amounts to an abuse of that right. But as you've said, that test is imprecise. That creates a bit of a conundrum uh, in a society founded on the rule of law. Uh, as lawyers, we should always strive to ensure that the rule of law is respected, the, the resort to violence, I think, in itself is the antithesis of the rule of law. But the response to that should also not be in the context of a, a breach of the rule of law. I think it has to find its answer within the confines of the legislation that we currently have. Where the legislation is deficient, it should probably be amended. It seems to me, and, and this has been discussed in the past, that if a strike is violent, that in itself doesn't comply with the definitional uh, elements of a strike. It seems that a strike, by its very nature, should be peaceful. There's no reason why a strike, uh, and the right to strike particularly, is more important than other constitutional rights, such as the right to life, the right to property, the right to dignity, and the, and the right to freedom 
and security of the person. But it doesn't seem like our lawmakers have fully understood this concept. The, the right to strike is, has enjoyed almost a, a mythical status. Uh, and there's a romantic idea around the right to strike, and there are historical reasons for that. But at the moment, we are dealing with a crisis, and we need to stop thinking in those romantic terms and start dealing practically and decisively with this issue. Uh, but as I say, it's not clear at this stage. There are no hard and fast solutions to, to the strike violence. And what employers are having to do is to actually look at and prepare for strike violence. So the, the level of detail that goes into contingency plans for strikes is, is something that is quite staggering sometimes. And what you would have is where employers put these measures in place, you have unions and their members responding in kind. So it almost becomes a bit of a, a battleground. And I hate to use that word in, in the industrial relations context, but it, it really does become that. So where, for instance, an employer will, will try to secure its vehicles, for instance, to make sure that they're not damaged. What you would have is in the evening, persons breaking into the area where the, the vehicles are kept and then sabotage happening or malicious damage to property during the evening, uh, things like that. All attempts to try and undermine the employer who may already have put contingency plans into place to deal with the strike. So, it really is a, a high-stress, high-intensity uh, high environment um, with very little room for trying to resolve the issues. What it does, the, the sort of violence that we experience is that it polarizes the positions and it actually hardens those positions. So the idea of sitting around the table and negotiating is very difficult when, when all this violence is going on. Often employers just capitulate because they don't want to deal with, with the, all the violence and they give in to wage demands and other demands, which are sometimes unsustainable, which in the short term might be okay, but in the long term lead to possibly restructuring and, and retrenchment simply because the labor costs have become too high. So you've said several things that are interesting to me right now. For example, you say that South Africa is a society based on the rule of law, which of course formally that's true. Although I think a very easy argument could be made that South African political order has always been founded on quite a lot of violence anyway. Yes. But right, we want to move away from that, of course. And you said that strikes have been romanticized because of a certain historical background to that, which is very understandable. It, labor unions have played a big role in political transformation in, South, in the history of South Africa and an important role. And then you told me that the violence often polarizes. So what I'm wondering is, do you think that the South African labor system and the la labor law as it is, is capable of addressing the demands and the structural injustice that many workers face in their day-to-day -day life? If we simply subtract the violence from their claim making. Do you think that the system is set up in a way that they can effectively pursue their their social socioeconomic goals? Another way to put my question, is the violence not coming from some kind of frustration or uh, inability to improve their lot? Or do you think that it's completely unnecessary? No, I think... I think everyone would be able to empathize with the employees who engage in those violence up to a certain point. 
I think that the levels of inequality in South Africa are staggering. I think a recent report indicated that South Africa is the most unequal society in the world. But recently, South Africa, this week, in fact, uh, Statistics South Africa indicated that South Africa's unemployment rate is at 29%, which is several, several million people. And if you add people who've given up looking for work, that figure jumps to over 30%. Now, it's a strange conundrum because for people who have a job, you know, the remaining 65% or whatever it may be, you would think that those persons would, would try to look after and secure their jobs rather than engage in violence to improve their lot. But the reality is that even a large portion of persons who have jobs are earning salaries and wages, which are certainly not what they should be. It's not possible to get by in South Africa society on the salaries that they have. Many, many, many South Africans do not have any form of social security, including pension funds and medical aids and, and things to that effect. So you can understand why... Of course, South Africa has an economy that's been historically built on the exploitation of very cheap labor. Of course. For decades or centuries even. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's one of the problems. And I mean, if you look... South Africa's biggest contributor to the economy is still the mining industry. And the mining industry is labor-intensive. Even though there have been gains and there have been changes to legislation, the, the reality is, is that, in, in my view at least, very little has changed on the mines um, in, in recent years, at least in the last 20 years. If you speak to persons who are mine workers, it's likely that their father was a mine worker and before that his father was a mine worker. The idea is to how how do we give these people upwards mobility? And it doesn't seem that the that the wages that they're being paid at this stage is capable of doing that. So you can you can to a point empathize with their situation and their plight. But to allow persons to engage in violence in order to achieve their ends in a constitutional democracy as we have now is anathema and, and it should not be tolerated. A bigger emphasis should be placed on resolving issues. And when I say resolving issues, I mean having discussions. A lot of these people, in, in my work that I've done, a lot of these people have said to us that they do not feel that they are being listened to by their employers. Their employers do not understand what they are going through. And there's very little commonality that they find between each other. It's very much a, a, a polarized management, blue-collar environment. And, and that is something that needs to change. The, the Labor Relations Act introduced in 1995 the concept of a workplace forum, which works very well in Germany. It's based on the German model, but it's never taken off in South Africa. And I think it partly to do with our culture over here, which is not one of sitting around the table and resolving the issues, notwithstanding the drafting of the constitution in, in 1994 and how that came about. And, and avoiding all the terrible consequences that may have gone with it had we not reached that, that agreement. But I think in South Africa, a renewed emphasis should be placed on understanding the plight of workers and also looking at innovative ways to try and resolve these issues. Often we've had to deal with demands for, for pension funds and social security, and these are, these are expensive vehicles for employers to introduce. But there are, of course, alternatives, such as compulsory savings schemes, 
and things like that. And what you need is some out-the-box thinking on how to deal with these sort of issues. And there should also be a sort of give-back sort of agreements. These are big in the United States where you have situations where employers would say, we can give you what you want, but what do we get in return for that? And the idea is to increase productivity. And uh, we haven't seen a lot of that sort of stuff. Uh, it's very sort of old-school, hardline bargaining in South Africa, which still happens. And I think that we need to shift away. We need to establish workplace committees to deal with these things. Uh, disputes should be resolved at their source as quickly as possible rather than letting them fester. Um, there's a tendency in South Africa also for employers to speak directly to the unions rather than to their employees. And sometimes this leads to a distortion of the message, sometimes for political ends. Uh, where unions actually then try to gain cheap political points by suggesting that union that the union should go on strike in order to advance particular union members' political interests. But the reality is, is that employers have a duty of good faith to their employees and they should be communicating directly with the employees. The union itself is an important player in that process and they of course should be involved. But there should not be an isolation that occurs between the employer and its employees in circumstances where the employer simply communicates with the union. I think it should be a far more inclusive process. I think that employers should also communicate more often um, and on a wider range of issues uh, with, with workers and the trade unions. I also believe that there's a low level of economic understanding and skill on the part of trade unions and particularly blue-collar workers who don't seem to understand the realities of business and economics in general. And I think those things can also be dealt with in these um, consultative forums that I've suggested should be established. Yeah, because you mentioned the political element to unions, and I think that's a problem for many people, is that unions have a very overt political character and okay labor is of course inherently a political question but that the unions are seen as having their and their leadership is seen as often having more political ambitions than let's say having the interests of their members at heart and that union leadership can lead to a good career in politics in the future and that also probably a lot of the violence that we've discussed is not necessarily violence from workers onto, uh, let's say, the bourgeois to have a to use Marxist nomenclature, but it's a lot of the violence is also between different union members. Am I correct? Absolutely. So you have constant jockeying for positions, and you have a lot of infighting within the unions themselves. So even within Kusatu unions. So South Africa has. It's a multifaceted issue. You could do a whole podcast just on this. But, the, but I mean, to, just to give you an, an idea of how important trade unionism is in South Africa, even though trade union, sh union membership on the whole is declining, not only internationally, but in South Africa, you have a situation where South Africa's current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, was a prominent union member. He was the leader of Kusatu in the 80s. A trade union is a very important platform for you to launch a political career. In the previous elections that we saw earlier this year, we had the uh, General Secretary of the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, Irvin Jim, standing for election in a in a political party called the Social Socialist Revolutionary Workers' Party, obviously hoping to get votes. They didn't do very well. But nevertheless, it's an important place for 
for trade unions to to identify who their leaders are and then to jump into political office. And then in relation to the infighting between unions, remember that NUMSA a few years back had left the fold of Kosatu to form its own federation, which it has since done, called SAFTU, the South African Federation of Trade Unions. And what this has led to is a, is a splitting of the workers' blocks in South Africa. So Kusatu would sit at the National Economic Development and Labor Council, which was established by, by the Labor Relations Act to talk about economic and labor policy. And obviously, Kusatu would then represent those workers' blocks. But though the, that workers' block has split. Those workers' blocks have, have, have resulted not only in the split, but also competing interests and jockeying for members. NUMSA, even though being the, the Metal Workers Union, has converted its constitution to become a general union, which means it can organize in any sector. And as a consequence, it poses a threat to all of the other Kasatu-affiliated unions. So it leaves Kasatu, becomes a general union, and can now organize in any sector. As a, as a consequence, they've become a very powerful trade union. Not that they weren't before, but I think they've become far more powerful in recent years. Within Kusatu, you see a sort of crumbling trade union leadership. Most of those squabbles are about leadership of the party, control of party funds, which is also another important issue that unions often fight about. And then on the mines, you've also had um, the most famous example was Marikana in 2012, where you had inter-union rivalry between the National Union of Mine Workers, the established and recognized trade union in the mining industry, at that time anyway, and its offshoot union, AMCU, which was led by Joseph Machunjua, and AMCU itself was an offshoot union from NUM, uh, members who had become disillusioned with NUM's leadership, uh, that it almost become a sort of cartel with the, with the mining houses, uh, and felt that they were not representing the the interests of mine workers. So, and that led to a great shift. I mean, AMCU has done very well recently. AMCU is now the, the, the main trade union in the platinum sector following Marikana. And um, it's making tremendous inroads in, in other sectors as well. It's just had a, a five-month strike in the gold sector in relation to Sibanya Gold, where it got a bit of a bloody nose. But uh, notwithstanding that, it still remains a very powerful union. In a long, long way around, in summary, to answer your question, uh, trade unions are important vehicles to launch political careers and ambitions. And uh, to that extent, I think even, even AMCU, the NUMSA, uh, and another number of other unions have, have used their political clout to, to actually in, ensure and block important amendments that needed to be made to the Labor Relations Act in order to deal with for instance, strike violence. Right. So you've mentioned something I wanted, I was keen to get to. We talk about uh, union leaders who launch successful political careers. And then we have, in the case of the president, Sawa Ramaphosa, who is in the highest office, who before started his public career as a major union leader, and then you also mentioned Marikana, where Ramaphosa is naturally also implicated in, because what happened at Marikana was when we talk about strike violence up to now, we've been talking about the violence emanating from labor. But what happened at Marikana was the inverse, where we had uh, extraordinarily violent backlash from the state in the form of the police, shooting and killing striking miners. Police killed over 30 miners dressed in full riot gear and 
shields and helmets and with assault rifles. And the person that gave the order to do that, he was not the president at the time, he was the vice president, but Saro Ramaphosa gave, he was eventually the one that gave the green light for the police to act. So where his loyalty lies is clear in this sense. It lies with no one other than himself, not with Labour. But can you tell me more about your take on what happened at Malikana? It's been a few years now, but I think it's still one of the major events or should be one of the major events in South African history. Yeah, sure. The Marikana tragedy, as it's rightly described, I think is a sort of an aberration that happened. But it's not new. I mean, these things have been happening in South Africa for many, many years. And you can go back to the Rand Rebellion, where the state exercised extreme violence against its own citizens who were engaging in a strike. And then you go to the 1940s, where, where it happened again. Uh, you then move ahead to the 70s, <clears throat> the strikes in Durban. There was also violence from the police. And it's not it wasn't unusual during the apartheid era to see violence against striking workers or even uh, riots. Of course, there have been comparisons um, to the Sharpeville massacre in Soweto in 1976, and you and I have actually discussed this. And I don't necessarily think that while there are commonalities, I think they're they're separate from some of the earlier incidents that I've mentioned because those incidents involve employers and the employees. So it was really in the industrial relations context, very much like Marikana. So I think comparisons of Marikana to Sharpeville and Soweto 1976, I think are slightly misplaced. And William Gumede said what made Marikana different was that was the image that you that everyone saw on TV of black police officers fi- firing on black workers and being more than well at that stage I suppose twenty years almost into democracy what impact that has on the South African psyche and the questions that one must ask about what has really changed in relations uh, or or in regard to how how the state deals with strike violence and while it's true that during Marikana there was a lot of violence that had happened. Before that massacre, one has to wonder whether that was the, the correct way to deal with it. Uh, and I think we can all say that no, it wasn't. Uh, the Farland Commission that was set up after that was tasked to find out who was at fault. And as it turns out, just about everyone was at fault, uh, including the, the, the trade unions that were involved. So it all led to a very combustible mix and a complete failure of our industrial relations system. And again, I suppose it comes back to whether our law is, is adequate to deal with all of these issues. And, and this is particularly in circumstances where our society is so unequal. In many instances, you, you have people on strike who don't really even understand the law and how strike provisions work. And as I've said earlier at the beginning of the talk, you then have situations where police who are supposed to be trained are, are not clear on how to deal with these situations. And what it results in then ultimately is scenes such as Marikana. And I think since Marikana, what we've had is an even greater emphasis by the police to not become involved in these sort of situations. I think it's become a serious stumbling block for them, and it's not something that the police want to be involved in again. I think it's caused a certain amount of reputational damage for them, and I think that they are now very wary about intervening in industrial disputes again. I think you mentioned black policemen shooting on black miners in South Africa at Marikana. And then you also mentioned the Rand Rebellion, which the Rand Rebellion, that was in the 1920s. Am I correct? Yes, that's right. In the 1920s, you had white policemen firing and killing 
many white mine workers. So it's almost a century apart. And then in the intervening part, it was, of course, mainly, I, I suppose, white policemen, black workers. But the point to me seems that what's scary is that we can talk about the right to strike. And you said, we all agree that that's an important right. And okay, perhaps a lot of times these strikes move outside of the boundaries of lawful. But even even then, the message I'm getting is that you can strike a little bit, but if if you push your luck, capital is going to put you back in the mine. It's going to put you back to work with an assault rifle. That's, you know, Carl Schmitt's the state is the final arbiter of violence, the yeah. final instance of violence. So what, you know, what is this right? if people can get mowed down for not working. Mm. Yeah, sorry, I suppose that's not much of a question, but... Yeah, I suppose it's an observation. I suppose it's true, you know. The, I mean, I don't, I don't really know how to answer that, to be honest. It's, it's one of those weird things that, uh, you know, the state is the state, and the state will exercise whatever power it deems fit. In a constitutional democracy, and that's perhaps where we're different from 100 years ago, there should be some accountability for that sort of action. I don't necessarily think that has happened after Marikana. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's been much. No, it doesn't seem like it at all. So, But, yeah. I mean, you say the state is the state, but the state could easily have joined the side of labor. The The state made a decision to join the side of capital. Well, I suppose what, what is a bit anomalous about that is that the state um, is, is run as a tripartite alliance between the South African Communist Party and, and Kasatu and the African National Congress. So looking at it through that paradigm, it's completely bizarre to understand how the state would then exercise violence against workers. Um, you, would, you would think that... And given South Africa's history, it, it is quite bizarre for Marikana to have happened at all. And I think that's probably what William Gumede was alluding to. Martin Brassi has a, has a slightly different view on why it took place. He, he says that um, what you had post-1994 is exactly what we spoke about earlier, trade unions jockeying for political position, union members arguing for... Uh, or arguing stupid points in the labor court when they should be at uh, com uh, union meetings or committee meetings discussing strategy. And what you have is a disconnect, not only between employers and employees, but a disconnect between unions and their members. That in itself led to Marikana's situation where you had employees saying, well, we don't actually want to, these trade unions. And there was a complete rejection of the trade unions. And in doing so, what that indicated, and this was probably the most disturbing thing, was a complete rejection of South Africa's industrial relations system, which has been set up in the Labor Relations Act. It's, South Africa's Labor Relations Act is, is premised on the notion of majoritarianism and democracy. So where you reject the trade union that represents the majority, you really undermine the entire labor relations system of the day. And where you no longer want to participate in that system, that becomes a problem. And just on a side note, uh, now that I'm talking through it, it actually raises another interesting issue, is that 
while, and I mentioned earlier that while trade union membership is on the decline, what we are seeing more frequently is civic organizations becoming involved. So what you would have is something like the Casual Workers Advice Office acting as a, for lack of a better term, let's call it a, a union for disenfranchised workers. The advantage of, that they have is that they don't only act for the employees, they act for the unemployed. Whereas trade unions are concerned essentially with those who are employed because those are their members. So the, the Casual Workers Advice Office casts the net much wider and is able to appeal to a broader base of people, particularly when you have 29% unemployment. The problem they face is that they, they fall outside the parameters and the framework that is set up by the Labor Relations Act. So employers refuse to engage or hesitant to engage with uh, people like the Casual Workers Advice Office and added to the Casual Ad Ad uh, Workers Advice Office are community organisations. And community organisations, uh, these, these occur often in rural areas where they demand employment, they demand tenders and things like that in the area. So, uh, for instance, in the northwest, in Pumalanga, and even in Limpopo, it's happening in Gauteng a few times as well, as far as we know where communities will appoint a so-called leader. This person will then approach the employer and make certain demands on behalf of a community that he purportedly represents. I'm not saying that in all instances this person is not properly mandated, but I think that there are probably interest groups that he represents, uh, he or she, and, and then there are threats made, and the community then actively begins to undermine this employer until they get what they want. And we've seen this happen with several employers in, in rural industries, particularly where there's one or two major employers in a, in a rural area. And the community then starts demanding jobs and it starts demanding improved social benefits and social services. And one of the reasons for that, I suppose, is also the complete and abject failure of municipalities to deliver even the most basic of services. Uh, and that possibly is due to incompetence and also possibly due to the, the level and scale of corruption that we've seen in South Africa over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about how, you know, South Africa is structurally unequal. It has been since the beginning. We have very tense and very violent relationships between labor among itself, between labor and employers or capital and then the state you know the state being a kind of unclear role player in all of this the but the result that we get is a really crazy amount of extra legal violence you are a labor lawyer and you deal with strikes every single day and you've done this now for a while for many years so in your professional experience and opinion what is it that the law can do to alleviate the tension and the violence that's occurring that we all condemn what is the role of the legal system in all of this what is working for you and at your firm well it's a difficult question my personal view is that the law can do very little to to stop the violence i think the violence is something that is a complex problem that cannot be solved through the passing of new laws i think Laws in any event are reactive, I think, to deal with these issues. Any law that would be passed now would be passed in order to deal with ways of curbing violence. And by the way, laws have been passed recently in the Labor Relations Act. But again, I don't think they would have any effect. Most More recently, 
there was a, in January a new law came into effect to deal with what is it called? It's an advisory arbitration process where in in strikes that are violent or that could cause disruption to the national economy or very much like the Sibania gold strike that happened over the last five months, employers or unions could engage this mechanism in the Labor Relations Act. It would then appoint a panel of arbitrators comprising someone from labor, from business, and someone from the, the CCMA, which is the, the, the dispute resolution forum established by the Labor Relations Act. And then an arbitration would happen, very informal, of course, but an arbitration would happen, and then those panelists would make a recommendation on how the strike should be resolved. And there's no guarantee that either of the parties would have any appetite to, to utilize that mechanism, which is what happened in Sibania's strike. And secondly, even if that recommendation is made, that recommendation is not binding um, unless certain unless there's a failure to respond by one of the other parties. So again, it's a limited resolution. And again, a hammer blow would not work either. That would have drastic implications for the right to strike. So you can't say and apply a broad-based approach necessarily, um, which would have implications for the for the right to strike. So you would have to dig a bit deeper. I think our society is, is a fractured one, and I think it needs to... I think it requires the work of social scientists and uh, persons much smarter than myself, frankly, to, to try and deal with this issue. Uh, lawyers can play their part proactively to, to a point, I think, but essentially we are concerned with the law and ensuring that the law is upheld. And at the moment, what we're dealing with is a complete disregard often for the rules of engagement in relation to strikes. And, and it's our job to make sure that those rules are adhered to. Uh, one of the positive developments that have recently emerged is to require all strikes that happen to be governed by a set of picketing rules that are determined by agreement between the parties and failing that, the um, the CCMA. But if if they are not adhered to, it, it will allow the court to suspend the picket, which is great, but it, it won't stop the violence. And I'm not so sure I'm not so sure that suspending the picket would stop the violence. You know, that that's another issue. Because once the the picket is suspended, we have a court order saying that the picket is suspended. And I've seen what strikers do with these uh, court orders often. They tear them up and set them on fire. So there's there's little regard for the authority of, of the Labour Court, um, which is unfortunate because that speaks to the the fact that the rule of law is in danger in this country. Yeah, I, d- I don't really know how else to deal with it. Um, but but, but the, the recent strike this week is a classic example. I can't imagine for the life of me that... This strike that happened in the week with the South African Municipal Workers Union where streets were blocked and buses were used to block public roads, I myself with my own eyes saw a number of strikers wielding sticks, threatening motorists, banging on cars, destroying dustbins, littering and completely trashing the CBD in certain instances. Many of the businesses had to close if you read the newspaper reports. The representatives from businesses in that area had said that they had to close their businesses for the whole week. Now, it, it seems to me that no picketing rules had been agreed on there. Uh, I can't imagine that they would have agreed that as parties to allow 
a strike to take place in the CBD for buses to block the roads, for sticks to be carried and for violence to be engaged in. Um, and in those circumstances, uh, we were informed that the, the Labour Court had ordered that the picket was suspended, but it went ahead nonetheless. So, you know, it doesn't seem to me that, that the law has much of a role to play. I suppose the issue is how much... I mean, the law is important, of course, uh, but the issue, the underlying issue is do people respect the law and are they willing to abide by it? And we're not at that point. And, I, and I'm not sure how we get there. Perhaps when people feel that they are part of the society and that they are being listened to, perhaps then they will feel that they, they should be listened to. I don't know.